Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast devoted to helping you live life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Dr. Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist and also author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. As listeners know by now, most of our podcasts are devoted to bringing onto our show guests who live their own lives enthusiastically and can guide us from their own perspectives into how our lives can be most productive and we can live to be the best version of ourselves for however long we're going to live. And today I'm really honored to have Dr. Carol Joyce, who has been a psychotherapist in New York City for 35 years, but she's so much more than that. And I don't think I can do justice to her by giving much of an introduction without letting her tell us. So let me first of all welcome you to the Rejuvenating Podcast. Carol, we're so delighted to have you with us. Well, thank you, Ron. And I'm so glad to meet you and to be able to talk to your audience. I always enjoy having a wide group of people who will listen and share in this, I think, this adventure that we call life, because it's certainly been that for me. Absolutely. Well, again, it's great to have you with us. As I said, I didn't do justice by saying, well, you've been a psychotherapist in New York City for 35 years. And I know over that time, you've helped countless numbers of people and, you know, have had a, a tremendous influence. But you know, most people, I think if they wanted to be a psychotherapist, would kind of decide, take psychology in school, go to school, and so on. You took a little more circuitous route, and so you're the expert on your journey. Why don't we start there and tell us a little bit about how you got to be you? Well, that's a really, really interesting story. And first of all, I want to say to those people that are there in the Philadelphia area, Love there. I was born in Methodist Hospital, so I'm very familiar with Philadelphia. I grew up. I have to interrupt for once. I'm on staff there, so I, I'm <laughs> very familiar with Methodist Hospital. I'm home. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so I was born in uh, Methodist Hospital many years ago, and I grew up in uh, South Philadelphia in an Irish Catholic enclave, Irish Catholic and Italian, and I uh, was sort of a cradle Catholic there a large Irish Catholic family, I had six brothers and sisters and two uncles that lived with us. So we were a huge clan in a very small row house with one bathroom. So <laughs> it was a wonderful uh, childhood for me. I just remember those years as having lots of fun, lots of connection, some rigidity, some good faith, very connected kind of experience. And I hated it when we had to move and we moved to the suburbs. My father made a little bit more money. They wanted us to be in both the good school system. So we ended up moving to Haverford, which is very different. It's a suburban area. And it felt very isolating to me after having been in a city where I knew the next door neighbors and was all connected to them. Of course, being a, a cradle Catholic, we continued in Catholic high school, one which was really wonderful. Uh, Notre Dame, which I just loved, was in Moylan. And it was equivalent, in my experience, to a college education. And an unfortunate um, violation took place in my life in that area without my even consciously knowing it. 
So in, after high school, when and I guess when I was 17, I went with a lot of my friends into the convent. So I spent a period of time in a Catholic convent, which I loved and thought, okay, when I reach 25, I will be a saint, then die, and then go to heaven. And when I reached 25, I didn't. And I was a little upset. I thought, do I have to continue living like this? And I began to have a little bit of doubt at that time. And then, of course, I was in college. And the world and began to open up. I said, I don't even know who I am. And the question of my life was, and this is when I left, this is what I thought, I need to find out who I am. I don't know who that is. I know what I've been told I am, but I don't know who that is. And so that has been my life's journey. It's been very exciting in doing that. I went fortunate to get a scholarship to NYU and I got my doctorate. You know, when we talk about life decisions, again, it was with friends. I knew I wanted to do mental health because when I was in Boston College, get this, a book fell from the library on the floor and I picked it up. And this is very Celtic, by the way. And it was a book by Dr. Gertrude Udeli, a Jungian analyst. And I thought, this is what I want to do. This is what I was made to do. I, it was like a point of recognition. So when it came time to go for a master's and I got a scholarship to NYU, one of my friends said, again, friend, let's go for the doctorate. Let's do the whole thing. And I thought, why not? So we all took scores together. And it's a little bit of what I did when I went to the company. I went in with a group of friends. So friends is very Celtic and also very connected. And it helped me. It's a way of sort of, plan living. And I've been very influenced by that. Some ways good, some ways not so good. Then when I was in my analysis, which I went into when I was doing Jungian work, I found something very wonderful. I found out that not was I just an Irish Catholic from Philadelphia, but I was a Celtic bard and a songwriter and a singer and how that all evolved was out of dreams. In the dreams, and I had no idea. I knew I liked singing when I was a kid. You know how they had those back alleys and behind the townhouses in South Philadelphia? Well, they would sell rolls there on Sunday morning after mass. And we'd get one. They were a nickel piece. And I would want another. So I'd go sing a song for the people down the, the road and I would get an extra role. And so I, I knew I, I liked singing and I would do it for people. But in my 30s, I was singing songs for my clients. At that point, they just began overflowing. They came out of dreams. So my analyst said, why don't you just write them? I said, I'm not a musician. I never had formal training in music. But again, it's a point of decision a point of how do you make a life? And I thought, well, I'll take a songwriting class, which I did. Before you go further, because I yes. want to make sure that we're not losing anybody along the way, because you mentioned Jungian analysis. And while yes. you and I may understand what that is, okay. uh, there's probably some people who, you know, have heard about analysis and Freud and things of this nature. And yes. now Jungian analysis, what <laughs> so give us the, the short course, the, the skinny version on what would be not just one podcast, but several of them to, to really learn about it. Okay. Jungian analysis for me, I'm going to make this very simple for people, was therapy a few times a week. 
And a lot of it revolved around deep dreams that came up. So it's a deep dive into the unconscious and you live there for a number of years. My way of living there was that dreams would come up and we would work them. I would draw them. I would sing them. I knew and I felt my inside, what was inside me, not what was coming from the outside, but what was coming from the inside. And I was fortunate to find someone, Sylvia Pereira, who is an expert in Celtic mythology. And she helped me to see that my family was very disconnected from all their sort of Irish roots. None of them had been back to Ireland. And I examined that. I went and I actually have Irish citizenship. I went and I claimed it. I visited my family. I actually lived out what the dreams were telling me. And not everybody thinks they have dreams. All I can tell you <laughs> is that if you work with someone who does dream work, you will begin to have dreams. They will come to you more and more. And those dreams informed my life. They literally led me to sing, to write songs, to do cabaret, and to write songs for my clients that mirror who they are. And so it has become a part of my work. So on the one level, it's about yourself growing into a sort of a more expansive life. In a very deep way, it's helping you to get to things that you wouldn't even imagine in yourself. I had no idea that that was there. But in Celtic mythology, there is usually one in a family. Usually it's, you know, around the seventh child. I was not. But there's one who carries the story. That carries the story, particularly in oral traditions, that carries the story of your family, your clan, the culture that you live in, and you pass it along. You do that in story. You do that in song. And you do that in friendship and clan. I'm wondering, I mean, I'm getting a lot thrown at me and I'm trying to sort out okay. if somebody worked with you in, say, in your 40s. I yes. mean, I'm hearing about cabaret. I'm hearing about the music, the mental health part, the dreams and so on. What were you doing then? How did you put it together? And is that still the way that you practice? Okay, what I was doing then, in my 40s, I had met my husband, who was the night editor of the Daily News and Communication, and then a professor at Columbia. We got married, and I had to break some of the parental injunctions. He was a divorced man. This was not in the Irish Catholic tradition. So again, it's you have to take responsibility for your life, making decisions, and with a lot of anxiety, doing something that was outside the norms of the culture and the faith that I grew up in. But it was an absolute right choice. And at that time, we had a very wonderful 30 years together. So I met him when I was 39. Yeah. And during that period, we had a home here and in the city. I had a very vibrant practice. And these songs began to come out. And then in the evening, I would be taking songwriting classes. And I would begin to write these songs, some of which he loved. Some of which he said, oh, my God, not again, not again. So, <laughs> so it was the opportunity to have someone who loved and encouraged me, who was with me in this journey of being 
this new person that I had no idea was there. And then I began to take risk in my practice because I would hear these songs as the person was talking to me. <laughs> and then I would take notes and afterwards I would record them. And then I went to a musician and I said, okay, I would like to put this to this music. And then I would give the client this song. And inevitably it changed the nature of our work together. It became deeper. They had a mirrored illumination of who they were in word and in melody. So it's about finding one's song line and the markers in your life that make you who you are so you can tell your story. You know, it's a lot like Bruce Chatwin, who in his book, Song Line, talks about how the Maori are able to lead and walk thousands of miles because they have the song that belongs to that mountain, to that plain, to that waterhole, and they can sing their way home. Now, would that be true for any client or patient that you saw? In other words, does everybody carry that around with them, the ability to create what you were able to turn into songs? Or is there something, you know, like those of us who do therapy on a regular basis, we find that some patients are more open, some are more closed. There are mm-hmm. some like that you can reach. Is, is the song, I have a couple of questions. One is, is it something everybody has? Secondly, is everybody receptive to the whole notion of this? And how does it move the, the process along? Does it make therapy deeper? Does it make it shorter? Does it lead to goals? What what is the benefit of, of having that, other than the fact that you're a nice person? and, and <laughs> Well, uh, those are good questions, Ron, very good questions. I don't use it with everyone, but there are times when the song actually comes to me out of the person. And if it does, it's almost like an intrusive, I have to pay attention to it. And when I do, and I give it to them, it enables them to almost have a transitional object that they can hold. It helps the therapy along. And it really deepens the therapy. It deepens their sense of themselves that somebody actually is able to see them, to hear them, and to get the melody of that. And I actually think that most of us have this, we don't all use it. Some of us don't want it, they don't want that. There may be another way that's more accessible for another person, maybe in a story, it may be in a poem, it may be just in speaking and talking through, and that's more than enough. But I find that if and when it occurs, it profoundly moves the person and changes their experience of themselves. They suddenly are able to feel themselves more substantial. They bring it up months after how important it was to them. And at times when it's difficult, they use it. So it's been a very valuable tool for some people. For some people, I always ask anyway, if they would like that. But I write it. If it comes to me, I write it. But I ask them if they like that. And all this really started with teamwork. Do you still do that with, with the people you work with? I do some dream work with those people that choose to go that route. I have two routes. One is dream work and psychotherapy. The other is hypnotherapy, which is shorter term. 
And that's a very different model, also very effective. That's much more effective, I find, with some of the anxiety disorders that I'm working with, that works very well. And the young women that come for that find that extraordinarily valuable. And for this generation, for the younger generation and the millennials, it's a right on kind of therapy for them. But the dream work, the people that want to undertake it, I have actually a lot of professors come to me, they love this. They just love it because it's deep. It comes from themselves. It's rich. And it gives life great meaning when you understand it and you live in that dimension. And rather than be frightened by it, to be able to be engaged with it and see what it's saying to you. It's so much rich symbolism that you sort of do the hero's journey, much like Campbell talked about. You find it. You begin to find your song line again and again in these dreams. And it moves you out of nightmare into journey, into Christmas dreams where things are coming to you to jewelry that you open up a box of jewelry and it's yours and uh, it's very moving what is the goal of dream work in other words how does somebody know when they're done i i mean many of us <laughs> many of us have heard of you know bad dreams with ptsd and you want yeah. to get them functioning and so on what if a professor comes to you and is interested in dreams i mean is this something that Presumably, they, they never stop dreaming, so uh, <laughs> how do they know when they're done? Well, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the story of one of them. Actually, this person is a filmmaker. She had enormous amounts of dreams in the beginning. Then she took her dream, and she has been engaged in the last three years in making this phenomenal film on a culture not her own. So she, the dream now is on the outside rather than on the inside. And of course, she's gone most of the time because it's another culture and she's loving what she's doing and unafraid and not anxious. So that's been her route. And by the same token, what kinds of things do people come to you for hypnotherapy? for? Oh, <laughs> you'll love this one. I had a young woman come to me very, very, very anxious. She's 39. She has two relationships ongoing, both of which were unsatisfying, and men who were obviously not available, also living at home with her mother and the primary earner for the entire family, and very anxious about not having a life. And if her mother died, she was going to be alone. And we did two sessions of hypnotherapy, and it got right to the root of the problem. And I'm telling you... <laughs> After two sessions, she came in the door, and this is a true story. <laughs> she came in the door, and she's very tall and quite lovely, and, but she thinks she's too large. She's a very lovely woman. And she walked in. I don't know whether your audience would remember the Loretta Young show, but it used to be on TV on Sunday night, and she would open the door, and she'd go, oh, the Loretta Young show, and she'd twirl around in her skirt. Well, this young woman came through my door, and she goes, Carol, you're never going to believe what I did. <laughs> she had written to the two men and said to both of them, you're very nice men. I'm just not getting enough of what I need. So I want to end this now. Thank you for the time we've had together today. And then she said, and I bought a new black Mercedes. <laughs> and she talked about 
having an old car, going to the dealer, saying, I want to turn this in, but I want to get the same car for the same price with an upgrade. He said, that's not going to happen. And she was clear. She had looked into it. She said, this is what I wanted. I'm clear. This is what I want. She looked across the highway and over there was a Mercedes dealer. She said, thank you very much. She walked across the street, walked in and said to the fellow, how much is that black Mercedes? And she got, not that one, a version of it. But it was an expansion of all the energy that had been pushed down and all her desire for what she wanted. She was able to make decisions. She had been living in total ambivalence and anxiety and not sleeping well at night. And we cleared it. And uh, she has done quite well and just recently got a note from her. She's got a better job. So these kinds of things can happen. And I've seen that with the people, particularly with the anxiety disorders in, in women who are competent on one level, but stuck in others. They're stuck in their injunctions that they have inside and help clear that out. We try and pitch our podcast to the entire age range because we think living with enthusiasm is important all the way through and it prepares us for aging with enthusiasm. But there is a substantial part of our audience that is in the second half century of their lives. And I'm wondering uh, whether you have any particular general guidance or things that, that you've observed with with people who are in the older age ranges that can help them to be more effective as they pursue, hopefully, an active lifestyle? Well, first of all, let me say I'm one of you. So secondly, I'm going to tell you a story that was given to me because this is very Celtic by my father, Bill Joyce, who lived to be 99, nine months and nine days before he died. We were planning a 100th birthday party. But I remember sitting at a round table in the kitchen talking to him. I said, hey, dad, what do you think about having a social security age daughter? He said, oh, it is nothing. Old age is nothing. Here's what. First of all, keep walking. Make sure you stay mobile. Secondly, have a good relationship with the Lord. Closer you get, the more you want it. Thirdly, make sure you have a lot of friends. Your family's going to be there, but one by one, they're going to go. And also make sure you have friends of different ages because they begin to go anyway. <laughs> and I thought these were pearls of wisdom and I have tried to live by them. And I see with the colleagues that I have, all of whom now are in their 60s, 70s and 80s, that we go to theater. Everyone is at some sort of physical exercise, which is really important that twice a week, at least twice a week, to have some social encounter, whether with a friend, at dinner, at the gym, but where you really connect up. And then to have goals for yourself, even if they're little ones. You know, I don't think it has to be huge things. Sometimes you don't know what to do. When I lost my husband, for instance, I was very depressed because I it was, it was such an amazing relationship. I still can't believe I had that in my life. I got somewhat depressed. I was by myself. His kids were on the West Coast. And it's like, oh, now what do I do? I'm in another phase of my life. And is it over? And I just continued to do what I did. I got very invested in a little parish that was near me, which I'm very grateful for. 
because of my spiritual journey, I had to leave for a while. I examined all the world religions, but I went back, sort of a cradle Catholic, back to my roots. And I'm very happy I'm there. God has blessed me. And the other thing was find something that's like, there's just your thing. For me, it's singing. I'll go to anything that's musical, that gives me joy. And I wake up feeling alive. The other thing is that, that I think is really important is to make plans with your friends so that you have something always on the burner in front of you. I used to do this with my husband. We always had, you know, we're going to theater or, you know, to the Philharmonic or you need to keep some of these activities going because they feed the soul. They feed you. And it also keeps you walking because <laughs> it gets very comfortable as you get older just to want to sit. And I have no thing against sitting, but you need to keep the, you know, we're, we're molecules of energy. So we need to keep moving. Our listeners are aware of the fact that, that the science is really strong, that, you know, if you stay active from a health and fitness standpoint, from a social involvement standpoint, especially if you're doing good for others too, and if you keep the mind intellectually active, that combination and when you add in spirituality and other kinds of things, taking classes, learning, learning new things and so on, that it makes positive changes in the brain as well as you know, keeping the, the body physically healthy. So I'm glad you, you had a lot of the same advice. Well, you know, one of, my, one of my friends is 91. Wonderful woman. She takes dance. She does dancing at the Jewish Center. And she goes to Columbia continuing ed classes. So she, one day she said to me, Carol, Orhan Pamuk is going to be doing snow at the class. You've got to come. So we walked in and we were with all these young people all undergraduates with a wonderful professor, wonderful professor. <laughs> they were all sitting there, their heads back. Ah. <laughs> and he says, did anybody read the book? <laughs> Two hands raised. One of them being my friends. <laughs> he said, I knew this. And another kid raised his hand and said, what did you expect? It was great. You think we're going to be reading a book on the break? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, just being around the young people and then the converse, he, the, the teacher proceeded to talk about Arhan Pamuk and it was just wonderful. It was a wonderful experience on many levels, intellectually, just being with the young people, knowing that you're still interested in hearing these things. We actually got to hear Orhan until he came later to Columbia. So it was really a wonderful experience. And those kinds, and she's 91. I have another person who was, she's 81, and she was diagnosed with stage four cancer, which she didn't have, or she does have, she doesn't have it now. She did have it. Through another friend, through another association, she found out about an advanced research thing at Wyangone, and this is a true story. She went for a second consultation. She was one out of the five million or whatever that responded, and she is cancer for a year and a half, and back swimming, going to Berlin to hear opera, and having a life. So it's stay out of the fear. That's the big thing. Stay out of the fear and stay into life and get as much of it as you can. I'm grateful for, for sharing all your wisdom with us today. <laughs> Unfortunately, one of, the, one of my uh, 
less enjoyable job is to be the timekeeper on these podcasts. So oh, no. Trying to close, <laughs> I do want to ask if, uh, if somebody doesn't live in New York and, uh, mm-hmm. and all that, do you have a presence online? Is there something if people want to reach out to you any way they can do it? Yes. And I'd love to hear from anybody who wants to. I have a website, uh, www.caroljoyce.net, N-E-T. And you can enter there. And also I have the music website, caroljoyce.com. And if you want a personalized PDF, you can email me at, got a pen? Carol and all one word, Carol Ann, C A R O L A N N, Joyce, J O Y C E dot com. And we'll get back to you. So, I want to do something for you. Can I give you, can I give one minute of song to you? Sure. Okay. This is one of the songs that's on the website, that you can, the music website, if you want to hear it. But this is what I started out with. Have you ever hid your heart in a tree? Have you ever sent your heart out to sea? In a small boat sailing along is a great love wanting on. Boy, that's one of the greatest ways to, to end this podcast. Thank you very much for being you and for sharing yourself with us. We will have the ways to contact you with the show notes and As my audience all know, if you need to contact me for any reason or to suggest upcoming guests, please contact me at ron.kaiser at thementalhealthgym.com. It's been an absolutely fascinating podcast. And thank you very much, Carol. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Thank you, audience. Take care.